All right, you can uh, take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. If you didn't pick up the notes on the way in, that might be helpful, so feel free uh, while we're looking for the passage, if you want to step out and pick up a copy of the notes just outside the door, uh, don't hesitate to do that, okay? Just, I, I find it helpful just to have something to look at while we're going through the text. Um, we don't normally do this, but uh, uh, tonight I'm going to point out a couple that's visiting here because it's just kind of a unique thing. But I'm going to ask Ben and Adrian, if you don't mind, I don't mean to embarrass you guys, but would you mind just standing up there? This is a young couple that's on their honeymoon from Kansas, all right, visiting with us tonight. I just want to thank you guys for making the effort to come out here. <laughs> that's quite a testimony, right? That, uh, thank you for joining us. May the Lord bless you folks. Um, and you came at the right time because we're preaching on love. So, hey, this might save your marriage, all right? So, <laughs> good timing on that. First uh, Corinthians 13. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to go ahead and read through the passage. Last week, we started the study on this text. Uh, we looked at the first three verses and emphasized the preeminence of love. Uh, tonight, we're going to focus on verses uh, 4 to 6. And um, we're going to be talking about the practice of love. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll finish up this three-part series talking about um, the permanence of love. And so 1 Corinthians 13, if you're there now, we're going to read through the chapter. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, whether there be tongues, they shall cease, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass, darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity, is love. <clears throat> a pastor... Um, tells uh, this story. A couple came to see him seeking counsel. The wife uh, started by uh, seeking to explain what their problem was uh, with their husband sitting alongside of her. And she basically said, I would have liked to have married a man who could be very strong and very gentle, strong enough to keep me in my place when necessary, but also understanding and sensitive enough to let me have my way in certain areas. He would be tolerant of my passing outbursts and wise enough to understand that I just need to cry from time to time. At those times, he would hold me and console me without seeking to lecture me or to argue with me. The wife continued to speak in this way for a while as she described this paragon of virtue, 
while her husband remained silent, listening attentively. And when she had finished listing all of the qualities that she would have liked to have had in a husband, but apparently did not find in her husband, the husband finally spoke up and said in a somewhat bitter voice, there was once a man like that who lived a long time ago, but they crucified him between two thieves. <laughs> and so his response certainly does make us smile, but he was right. Um, there was a man who lived out that perfect love. And that's the challenge of 1 Corinthians 13 for all of us. As this chapter provides a detailed description of divine love, and so it's important to understand that this love is not a natural love. Otherwise, we would not find it so hard <laughs> to live out the principles that we find here in this text. But as we allow the Spirit of God to work within us, it becomes entirely possible for us to love in a way that God describes. And so the focus tonight is that God wants us to practice. He wants us to put his love into practice in our lives. Now, in verses 1 to 3, just to review very briefly, verses 1 to 3, we saw that without love, the most remarkable gifts are empty and worthless. As Paul says, I am nothing. I'm worth nothing. If we do even the greatest of gifts without love. While the, the first three verses describe various gifts without love, the next verses describe love without any of the gifts. And the juxtaposition of these verses show that while the gifts without love are worthless, love, even without any of the gifts, any of the spiritual gifts, retains all of its worth, all of its beauty. In fact, these verses present a portrait, the very portrait of Christ. Indeed, if we read the text and substitute Christ's name for the word love, it fits remarkably well. However, no one else's name fits. Neither you nor me, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith. Only the name of Jesus works. If you look at that, verse number 4, if we substitute the name of Jesus for the word love, for the word charity, Jesus suffereth long and is kind. Jesus envieth not. Jesus vaunteth not himself and is not puffed up. Jesus did not behave himself unseemly, does not seek his own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil. Jesus rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, etc. Perfect fit, isn't it? Now try to put your own name there. <laughs> See how that one works. And in fact, as we go through the study tonight, I would like to encourage you, as we look at the different qualities of love that we ought to be putting into practice, on that sheet that you took with the notes on it, as there may be certain qualities that stand out where it's like, hmm, yeah, I don't think I have quite mastered that one yet. <laughs> um, circle it, okay? And at the end, we're going to come back to that, all right? You might have a lot of circles on your page before the night's over. We'll see. But, uh, but it's also important to notice as we go through these attributes of love that each one is written as a verb, not as an adjective. So it's interesting, like in verse 4, when it says, uh, charity suffereth long, okay, that's, that's a verb there. But the next one, it says, and is kind. The, in Greek, it's actually not an adjective, okay? Love is kind. It's actually love acts kindly, okay, is the idea. Um, and so every verb in this passage is also in the present tense, which in Greek has the idea that this is a 
these are aspects of love that are to be lived out day by day. It's a way of living. It's not something that we do from time to time or only when we feel, you know, the, the, the urge or whatever, the, um, the impulse to show love on this occasion. It should be a way of life, a, a day-by-day practice of living out God's love in our life. So, let's consider the practice of love. And first, we're going to consider what love is, or rather what love does, because again, these are verbs, okay, not adjectives. So, love suffers long. The word used here, the Greek word is makruthemeo, which comes from two Greek words and literally means slow to anger or patient. So, the first quality of divine love is patience. That's interesting. And it's interesting to note that this word is almost always used in regard to people as opposed to circumstances. And so it's talking about being patient or slow to anger with others. This word describes the individual who has been wronged and who has the power to avenge himself but who chooses not to. It's the idea of someone who refuses to act in an outburst of anger or even to speak without first giving serious thought to what should be said. Love does not react on the spur of the moment. Rather, love patience. If you can make that a verb, okay? Love suffers long. Love takes its time to think of how one should respond to a situation. In Proverbs 16, 32, the Bible says that a man who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Okay, the Bible says a real hero is somebody who can control his own impulses, his own anger, and be patient in a situation, especially be patient with other people. But love is just not, uh, love is not just not lashing out or getting even with somebody. No, the love is goodness in action. And so the next quality Love is kind, or again, as a verb, love acts kindly, right? It is ready to serve others. And so this is the quality of love that pushes us to serve someone who could never pay us back. In fact, as we noticed love last week, if you remember the definition, it's showing that kindness to those who don't even deserve it, those who in our eyes wouldn't be worthy of it, and yet we still seek to do them good. It's the decision to overcome our selfish tendencies in order to help the weak or the poor or the oppressed without any thought of being paid back. When James exhorts us to visit the sick or to spend time uh, with widows or orphans, he says that that is the stuff of true religion. And so if patience, the first quality, is more of a passive quality, you know, not reacting too quickly, not lashing out, then kindness is truly an active quality. If patience demands victory over a tendency to become angry, kindness demands victory over a tendency to be selfish. Again, as we defined love last week, it's thinking of others, considerate of others, considering the interests of other, others. And so, it's one thing to be patient with those who have done us wrong. It's quite another to then show them kindness in return. 
But that's the very thought we find expressed numerous times in the Bible. Romans chapter 12, for example, it says, Recompense to no man evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. This short poem I came across some time ago just seemed to fit very well here. It says, He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had a mind to win. We drew a circle and took him in. And that's the active quality of love. Reaching out to those who maybe have rejected us, reaching out to those who maybe have even hurt us, but including them in our love and showing them God's kindness. One of Christ's statements that struck me when I first began to read the Bible when I was in college, and I began reading in the New Testament starting with the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, I got to chapter 5 and was literally stopped in my tracks. I remember reading that passage, and I just had to stop for a minute. When Jesus made the comment that we are to love even our enemies. And I don't remember ever having heard that teaching from Jesus before. At least I hadn't given it much thought. But boy, did that stop me in my tracks because I recognized immediately that that wasn't me. I wasn't even close to that. You know, I thought I was doing all right if I just didn't get back at people, you know. But actively showing them love, being kind to them, doing something good for them when they actually hurt you. And Jesus goes on to say, because if you only love those who love you, what's remarkable about that? He says, even the heathen, even those who don't know God can do as much. But when we show kindness to someone who has wronged us or spoken evil of us or who has hurt us, that's the proof that's God, that, that God's love is in our hearts. And that's the love that is being portrayed and commended and commanded in this text. So what keeps us from showing this love? Why is it so hard to be kind and considerate and to serve others? Well, it's because love has enemies. And so the next section of 1 Corinthians 13 talks about what love is not or the enemies of love, things that love should never do or never be. And yet these are the very things that often creep into our hearts, creep into our minds, creep into our lives, and then prevent us from actually loving as we ought to. So the first one Paul mentions here in verse number 4 is love envieth not. Love does not envy. Now there's a distinction between jealousy and envy. Jealousy is the fear of losing something that you already have, whereas envy is the desire to have that which is not yours, but begrudging the person who actually does have it. And so it's a bad sign. It should worry us if we cry when others succeed and we didn't. Or if we are joyful when others fail, there's a definite sign that something is lacking in our spiritual walk. One of the most beautiful demonstrations of love in regard to this idea of envy is the friendship between Jonathan and David back in the Old Testament. And uh, as Jonathan preferred to see his friend David become king rather than himself when Jonathan was the rightful, you know, heir to the throne. It was his father who was the king at that time. And yet he said, David, I know you'll be king and I'll be your right man. I'll be there to support you. That is a true friend. And that 
is what love does. In fact, the Bible says Jonathan loved David as his own soul. He lived out truly what love was. There was a, a newspaper article uh, written where a mother of four was quoted in this article, and she was talking about her neighbor who also had four children, and this woman said of her neighbor, she said, her house shines, she's a great cook, her children are well-behaved, she's active in her church, she's pretty and pleasant, I can't stand her. <laughs> That's kind of the vocabulary of envy, right? Uh, whenever envy is present, love is absent. And so the key to victory in this particular area is to learn contentment. Just as Paul expressed in Philippians 4.11 when he said, For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. If we can truly say that we are content with what God has chosen to give us, envy will no longer be a problem. So, first enemy of love, envy. The next envy, that, or the next enemy that Paul mentions is love does not vaunt itself or does not boast. And this would be kind of an outward expression of pride. So, if envy is a serious problem, pride is hard on its heels. Love does not boast. Boasting and envy are perhaps related in a certain way because the one who envies wants what somebody else has, whereas the one who boasts wants others to envy what he has. But the Bible says if we're to boast, let us boast in what God has done for us, in us, or even through us. Look at Jeremiah real quickly. If you would turn back to the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 9, a great uh, reminder for all of us. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. We read, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, boast in his wisdom. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth, let him that boasts, glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which ex exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. And so if we're to boast, yeah, let's exalt Christ. Let's talk about what Christ has done. It's uh, John the Baptist nailed it perfectly when he made that statement, he must increase, but I must decrease. So, love does not boast. Love is not puffed up. The next quality. Now, if boasting is kind of the outward expression of pride, being puffed up is certainly the inner attitude of pride. This negative quality is used to describe those who are satisfied with themselves and proud of what they accomplished. Without a doubt, pride is one of the most common and most harmful sins of mankind. Turn to 2 Timothy 3 just for a second. 2 Timothy 3, as again, the Bible just uh, nails what is the problem with mankind and all the more in our times because the Bible says these are the times we're living in. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. 
2 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. What's going to, do, what's going to characterize these perilous times? Verse 2, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. So right at the top of the list, right? Boasting and pride are what typify, what characterize those who have turned away from God, those who are not seeking love. In fact, the Bible even says that God hates pride. Proverbs 8.13 says that. Because it's the very thing which keeps so many people from coming to Him. The reason people don't come to the Lord is because they feel that they're okay without Him. They don't need Him. They feel sufficient of themselves. And so God says that He hates pride. And that is why the Bible stresses so often the importance of humility and of coming to God with a humble heart. Um, a missionary that probably many of you have heard of, William Carey, he was a missionary to India and is often referred to as the father of the modern missionary movement. He had such an impact on missions. But he was an accomplished linguist who translated the Bible into almost 40 languages and dialects in the country of India. Can you imagine that? However, he was from a simple working-class family and had worked as a cobbler uh, before becoming a missionary. And so one time in India, when he was invited to a kind of a formal dinner, some were kind of poking fun at him because of his low birth. And one person said to him, uh, <clears throat> I understand, Mr. Carey, that uh, you used to be a shoemaker. To which Mr. Carey replied, Oh, no, I did not make shoes. I only repaired them. In spite of all of his notable accomplishments, he knew to show humility. Love is not puffed up. Next, love does not behave itself unseemly, or another way of saying that, does not behave in an unbecoming manner. Simply put, love practices good manners. Love is polite. Love is thoughtful of others. Now, love is much more than good manners and politeness, but it is never less. Love is much more than good manners and politeness, but it is never less. Love of needs must be considerate and courteous. If we're walking in love, if we're showing love, we're not going to be rude or crass or impolite. This is one of the reasons why I find that the Bible is such an amazing book. It is so practical, so down to earth. But like the Corinthians... We often tend to think that love is only shown by great acts of sacrifice, like in verse number 3 when it says, if I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, then I'm showing love. Or if I give my body to be burned, then I'm showing love. And Paul says, no, no, those aren't, those aren't uh, necessarily equal with love. We forget that real love is just as concerned about the small acts, being courteous, being polite, being well-mannered in action and in speech. Love does not behave in an unbecoming manner. Next, nor does love seek its own. Or another way of saying it, love is not self-centered. I was astonished to read this. In a secular 
encyclopedia. One time I was looking up something under etiquette. Anyway, um, and uh, I was interested, intrigued to find this entry in a secular encyclopedia under the word etiquette, but it read, as part of the description, all people are born entirely selfish. Ha! <laughs> the secular encyclopedia that nailed it, right? Born entirely selfish. Man, I didn't realize how selfish I was until I got married. And then especially when children came along. And boy, you realize then how much you were just accustomed just living for yourself as a single person, especially, you know, not having to think about others. Well, that was a wake-up call. But love chooses to follow the exhortation that we find in Philippians. And I'd like for you to turn there. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, where Paul, in writing to the church of Philippi, <clears throat> makes this statement in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. As we've mentioned before, Love, by its very definition, thinks of others. Loving one's neighbor, loving the brethren, loving even our enemies, but which means that we're taking this focus off of ourselves and putting it on others and their needs. The best example of selfless people that I could possibly think of are mothers. Motherhood requires a selfless love, a life of love, a love that is often not rewarded and sometimes not even appreciated. I mean, ask yourself this. When is the last time that you thanked your mom or your wife for washing your dirty, smelly clothes? When's the last time you thanked your mom or your wife for scrubbing all the dirty pots after the last excellent meal she served, or for washing every floor in the house when you were out doing, you know, whatever your activities were for the day. But that's what moms do. That's what wives do. And they do it day after day. Because that's what love is all about, choosing to serve others, being thankful or not choosing to love others, to think of others, to make personal sacrifice for others. Love seeketh not its own. Next, love is not easily provoked. As we read there in verse number 5, love is not easily provoked. It's interesting that French translation of this verse actually says love is not irritable. Huh. Are you an irritable person, somebody with a short fuse, somebody who is easily irritated, easily provoked? If so, then you are not acting in love. Maybe stated in a more positive fashion, this verse could read, love learns to control one's emotions. And so we're instructed here that we must not let ourselves be provoked and allow our emotions, emotions to control us because of maybe some personal offense or some personal disappointment. No, agape love is not irritable and will not allow itself to become easily upset 
easily angry, easily irritated because of personal offenses, injustices, or disappointments. In James chapter 1, James says, um, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man accomplisheth not the righteousness of God. Love is slow to wrath. Why? Because as James nails, he says, the wrath of man, a man's anger cannot work, cannot accomplish the righteousness of God. If we get angry and we let our anger kind of take over, we can no longer discuss a matter rationally and justly with our spouse or with our kids or with anybody else, with a workmate. And so what's the answer? If we're not to be easily provoked, how do we overcome that? Well, recognize that giving free flow to your anger or to your irritation is certainly a sign of foolishness and sin. In Proverbs, let's go to Proverbs for a minute. There's several, several verses in Proverbs I'd like to look at. But Proverbs chapter 29, starting there, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11. Proverbs 29, verse 11 says... A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. Okay? A fool uttereth all his mind. So how are we to deal with this? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that acting rashly, speaking rashly, allowing our emotions to get the best of us is acting as a fool. But next, we need to choose to act upon, upon the wise precepts that the Bible gives us. And so in Proverbs 19.11, we read this one verse that, uh, wow, if we could just get a handle on this one verse, I think it would revolutionize a lot of our relationships, a lot of our discussions, a lot of our, uh, the situations that come up in our homes. In Proverbs 19.11, it says, the discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. It is the glory of a man or a woman to pass over a transgression, to let it go, to not let this thing get under your skin, to not take it too much to heart, to just drop it, forgive the person. And so in many situations, that's the best way to handle it. The best way to answer, to respond is just let it go, just Forget it, forgive it. It's not a big deal. It's not worth getting into a fight about. But in those cases where we feel like we need to address this situation, we need to respond to this person that said something that was just really, you know, out of place, then let's turn to Proverbs 15, verse 28. Proverbs 15, 28, that says, The heart of the righteous studieth to answer. But the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. Okay, the heart of the righteous studieth. You think through, you take the time to reflect on what is the right way to answer the situation, to handle this problem, to deal with this hurt. So you take time, you allow yourself to pray about it, you allow the Lord, the God to, to speak to your heart, to calm you and to give you the right words to say. And then Proverbs 15.1 adds this, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. And so when you do speak, to do so calmly, to do so respectfully, 
to give a soft answer, an answer of appeasement, an answer seeking to reconcile, to restore, not to attack, not to defend. And so God lays out the, the, the blueprint there for us to follow if we're going to avoid those heated discussions, if we're going to avoid blowing up and letting our emotions get the best of us. So would you be willing to ask God this evening to help you? Now listen now. Would you be willing to ask God to help you to never yell or lose your temper when attempting to resolve personal conflicts? Now maybe some of you already have a handle on that. Praise the Lord for it. Maybe some of you are still struggling. Would you be willing to ask God tonight to help you to be able to so control your emotions and submit them to the, the Spirit of God that you would never have to resort to yelling, losing your temper in order to win an argument? Love is not easily provoked. Next, love thinks no evil. Going back to our text in 1 Corinthians 13, love thinketh no evil. Now, there's two possible meanings of this phrase. First of all, it can just mean what it says, to not think evil about others. That's the idea, okay? To not think badly of another person. Obviously, there's, there's great danger, okay, in thinking the worst about others, to question their motives, to assume their guilt. This is the very opposite of what it means to love others. But there is another possible meaning to this phrase, love thinks no evil, which I think is probably more likely in light of the context of love that we're looking at, because the Greek word that's used here is the word logizomai. It's an accounting term. It's the act of making entries into a log in order to have a permanent record. That's what the, verse, that's what the verb means, okay? And so it's love doesn't do that, okay? So this text is saying that love does not rigorously record the wrongs that have been suffered at the hands of others. Love does not keep a log of all the wrongs and injustices that have been experienced, which is a sure way to become bitter. In fact, love acts more like an eraser <laughs> and seeks to erase these wrongs from our thoughts and from our heart. Indeed, when you make a mental record of hurts and wrongs that you have suffered in order to play over and over again in your mind or to bring up as ammunition in your next argument, you're not acting in love. To the contrary, the Bible teaches that love covers a multitude. Love covers a multitude of sins. Turn uh, to the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19. It's really interesting sometimes to see where certain teachings in the New Testament find their roots in the Old Testament. When Jesus said that uh, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul, and then the second is like unto it, to love your neighbors yourself, don't know if you all realize that what he was doing is quoting the Old Testament. And Leviticus 19.18 is the, is the verse that says we're to love our neighbor as ourself that Jesus quotes. And notice what it says just before it, though. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, notice what it says. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself 
I am the Lord. Wow. So the Lord says, when he says to love your neighbors yourself, he gives an example of what that should like or, should, or shouldn't look like. When he says that means then you're not going to hold grudges against others. You're not going to keep a mental list of the ways that somebody has hurt you or disappointed you. And so the commandment to love your neighbor is given as a contrast with the idea of bearing a grudge against someone else. Now, if that seems like a stretch, if you're like, oh, I can't imagine anybody doing that. <clears throat> I've met, my wife and I have met with couples for marital counseling where one or both spouses are still upset and bitter over something that happened five or ten years ago. I mean, we would sit there astounded. As we're, so what's the problem? What's, what's going on right now? Well, my husband did this. When did he do that? Oh, in 2003. <laughs> 19 years ago? And you're still bringing that up? There's a problem here, okay? That is the very opposite of what love does. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's the glory of man to pass over a transgression. Not to keep playing it over and waiting for the next opportunity to bring it up and nail him again with it. And so instead of being willing to forgive and let go of some offense... Instead, these couples would continue to play it over in their minds as if it had happened just yesterday. That's not how love chooses to act. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we are not to deal with problems, but we should do so in a timely manner and then let it go. In Ephesians 4.26, there's the phrase where Paul says, be angry, but sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Right? He says when we, allow, when we allow ourselves to go to bed at the end of the day and we're upset about something with someone and instead of trying to seek to resolve the issue or to reach out to the person, we just decide, I'm just going to go to bed and be angry. I'm just going to... I'm just going to stew in this all night long. <laughs> that will teach him, you know. <laughs> the Bible says that we're not to do that, let the sun go down upon our wrath, because, he says, we are actually giving access. It's like we're opening the door to our house and saying, Satan, come on in and sow all the problems you can in our home. I mean, you're just inviting additional problems by doing that. And so instead, the Bible says, no, every day deal with the issues of that day. I mean, if at all possible, sometimes you can't get a hold of a person until the next day. Okay, then you wait till the next day. But as soon as possible, you get a hold of that person, you try to resolve the issue, do what you can to have peace, be at peace with all men, it says, as much as it depends upon you, and then let it off. Give it to the Lord. Say, okay, I did what I could to resolve this issue. Maybe there was a favorable outcome. Maybe there wasn't. Either way, I'm just going to let it off, let it to the Lord. This person will answer to God from now on and not continue to stew on that in your heart, to play it over and over again in your heart, to become bitter in your heart. And so, <clears throat> are you willing to resolve in your heart that if at all possible, you will never go to bed angry without seeking an amicable solution to that day's problems? Would you be willing to resolve that tonight between you and God. Two more 
qualities to look at. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love finds no satisfaction or pleasure in sin, whether one's own sin or the sin of someone else. And you know, we need to be careful sometimes when a father is speaking to his children or to anybody and and he begins to recount the sins of his youth. That time when uh, I I became stone drunk. Or that time when I punched out that guy who stole my girlfriend. And we laugh about it. And we may like them, make, make light of it. And we maybe even boast a little bit about it. Rather, instead, the Bible says we should grieve over sin. Because love does not rejoice in iniquity. Love finds no pleasure in looking at past sins and laughing about it. And again, not only our sins, but it's just as serious when we find pleasure in observing the sin of someone else. Look at a passage in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verse 32 Romans 1, verse 32. Powerful statement that Paul makes here. He says, Romans 1, 32, Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. God says that one of the things that makes us worthy of death, worthy of judgment, in his eyes, is that not only do we engage in some of these practices, but in other cases we have pleasure in others who engage in these practices. And you're like, well, no, not me. I wouldn't do that. But you know, if we can listen to office gossip or neighbor gossip and kind of relish each detail that's being shared... Or if we can laugh along with the guys when they tell their off-color jokes. Or if we can watch a movie whose main characters are committing adultery, fornication, who are cursing and taking the Lord's name in vain and come away and say, that was a great movie. We are rejoicing in iniquity and not walking in love. There is a really... Challenging passage in Ephesians chapter 5. It's a little bit longer passage, but I really do want to read it. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, that just, I mean, Paul just nails it on the head here. Ephesians 5, verse number 1, he says, Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But listen, he says, But if we're walking in love, He says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man, listen to this, let no man deceive you with vain words. Well, that's only a movie. What's the big deal if I watch these movies that, that glorify these sins? 
He says, let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things, because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what's acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. I mean, I stand here and feel ashamed when I think of some of the movies I've seen in the past. And after coming away, thinking, what? What was I doing watching that movie? These are the opposite of love. Rejoicing in iniquity should have no place in the life of a believer. But, let me close with this, love rejoices in the truth. On the other hand, we should rejoice. We should find great pleasure. Pleasure. I'll get it out. Find great pleasure over everything that is done according to God's truth. John says in 3 John, his epistle, 3 John, he says, I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in truth. No greater joy than that my children walk in truth. Not just his physical children, but you know, spiritual children. Could you say that nothing brings you more joy than to hear that other Christians are walking in the truth? That you find great pleasure in just hearing testimonies of believers who have had some victory or some blessing from the Lord? That that is your greatest joy? According to John, according to the Bible, then you need to realize that your love for God and others is not what it ought to be. Love rejoices in the truth. Rather than dwelling on the problems that a church might be facing or on the shortcomings of church leaders, and there's plenty of them, right? You look close enough, you'll find lots of shortcomings among our church leaders. We should instead choose to look for the spiritual victories in others and rejoice over what God is in the process of doing in the lives of others. That is the path of love. We come out of a week of vacation Bible school. Come out of a week of teen camp come out of one of these missions trips that multiple people in our church and the young people have gone on and to hear the testimonies and dwell on that and rejoice over these precious children who came in VBS and heard the gospel being so clearly preached. Rejoice in what God is doing in each of our lives here. That's the path of love. That is what love chooses to focus on. Let me close with the story of a man named William Gladstone. I don't know if he's a familiar name to you, but he was a prime minister in England in the 19th century. He was working late one night in order to prepare an important speech that he was to give the next day before the parliament. Around 2 a.m., a lady knocked at his door and asked if he would come and comfort her young, paralyzed son who was dying in their apartment just down the street. Without hesitation, the prime minister put his speech aside and accompanied the distressed mother. He spent all night at the boy's bedside, comforting him and telling him about the Lord Jesus. He even had the joy of seeing the boy receive Jesus Christ as his Savior. After dawn, or about dawn, the boy died. 
and Mr. Gladstone returned to his house. Several hours later, he told a friend, I am the happiest man in the world. William Gladstone gives us a true example of agape love. Out of love, he was ready to risk his political career in order to show the love of Christ to a dying boy. The same day, according to a number of historians, Mr. Gladstone delivered the best speech of his life. It was a total success. But Mr. Gladstone was prepared to sacrifice his political cause for a much greater cause. He preferred proclaiming God's truth to a dying child rather than advancing his own political platform. Mr. Gladstone rejoiced in the truth. And how about us? As we finish here tonight, let's take a minute just to review the notes and maybe go back and circle each quality of love that you feel that perhaps you are lacking the most, an area that you need to focus on, to work on, to seek God's help with. Having done that, would you commit right now in your heart, would you commit right now in your heart to pray every day this week and ask God to help you grow in each of those circled areas? Each day this week, find time to pray over that over those notes and those qualities that you circled. Say, God, help me to grow in patience. Lord, help me to be more kind. Lord, help me to not to be easily provoked. Oh, Father, help me to rejoice in the truth or whatever it might be, that we might grow in love, that we might practice love.